Air Force engineers faced a startling task in the fall of 2016. Supported by an international coalition, Iraqi security forces were on the move to retake sections of the country from the Islamic State. In July, they gained control of Kayara West Airfield, about 40 miles outside the important northern stronghold of Mosul. The airbase held crucial strategic potential as a central staging base and logistics hub for the Battle of Mosul. The problem was, its disarray was breathtaking. During the two years that they had held the airfield, ISIS militants had obliterated it, hoping to ensure it couldn't later be used against them. Once crews completed multiple bomb sweeps, 29 U.S. airmen began working on September 29th to restore the airfield. Over the next three weeks, they completed a project that was unprecedented in Iraq. They cleared debris, cut out damaged concrete, dug deep into the hard ground, and filled in new concrete. Throughout this rapid rebuild, engineers used equipment, procedures, and training developed and tested by the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center during years of research in airfield damage repair. They were equipped with two Erdic-developed kits that included heavy equipment and specialized supplies. By October 21st, the first Expeditionary Civil Engineering Group had placed nearly 500 cubic yards of rapid-setting concrete to complete a runway that was slightly longer than a mile. On that moonless night, a massive C-130 Hercules landed under the cover of darkness. The next day, another C-130 brought more supplies, and the push to Mosul was strengthened. An airstrip that had once been deemed irreparable was now operational. With airfield expertise that dates to World War II, Burdick is the Department of Defense lead in airfield damage repair. Its work is used across the armed services and by allies, including collaborations with the Air Force Civil Engineer Center, Air Force Research Laboratories, Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command Expeditionary Warfare Center, and others to modernize the state of airfield damage repair. Today, Burdick develops material and equipment solutions, as well as construction procedures to push current ADR capabilities and adapt them to changing missions and aircraft. That includes rapid damage assessment, clearance of unexploded ordnance, bomb crater repair, and rapid maintenance of deteriorated pavements. And Erdic's program spans the entire life cycle, including basic materials research, developing solutions, testing those solutions in realistic environments, transitioning the technology through support of service-specific acquisition programs, and even training. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Jeb Tingle, a Senior Scientific Technical Manager at Erdic's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory and lead for Erdic's Airfield Damage Repair Program. We will talk with Jeb about how Erdic R&D enables warfighters to rapidly repair damaged airfields and restore flight operations within hours of a major attack. Hey, Jeb, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So to start off with, this research is rooted in a long history of Erdic developing airfield solutions, really all the way back to World War II. Tell us about how Erdic got involved in this effort and how those efforts have evolved through the years. Yeah, actually, Erdic has been involved in airfields and pavements research since the 1940s, as you mentioned, World War II. As new heavy airplanes came online and during that development period, then we needed better ways to design and construct airfields that were suitable for the new larger airplanes of that time. So 
they looked around the country and they said, where is a, an appropriate group of scientists and engineers that are capable of working on this unique problem? And they found the Waterways Experiment Station had a very nice group of geotechnical engineers there because uh, addressing the soil dynamics issues related to the flood from 1927. So they said those same soil engineers or geotechnical engineers could be uh, used to help work on this problem for pavement. So pavement was really a, a kind of in its infancy as far as a specialty area. Huh. And it really evolved based around airfield damage repair and, and airfield construction related to World War II. And so over the years, as we have the types of aircraft have evolved, grown larger, bigger, and have more capability, then so has the need for pavement infrastructure to evolve and become even more competent to be able to sustain and support those new aircraft systems. And so that's as in 1940s, there was no Air Force. It was the U.S. Army Air Corps. So it was part of the Army. So okay. it made it was natural that it, it was started at uh, an Army organization that was the Waterways Experiment Station at that time, which is now, of course, the URDIC. But over the years, the we've maintained the expertise in house within the URDIC to do the design, development, and transition of airfields and pavements research and engineering. And so under Tri Service Reliance, which is a an initiative to kind of mitigate the potential redundancy among the different uh, armed services. The Army was designated as the tri-service lead for airfields and pavements research. So ERDIC still maintains that today, mm-hmm. and that's why we're so invested in airfields damage repair and airfields pavement research. Yeah, sure. And, and backing up, I guess the reason that expertise was here, you, you mentioned the flood, and I guess it was to build levees, right? To build right. better levees, yeah. and that's why you had to have geotechnical experts. Yeah, soils engineers, geotechnical experts at the time, and pavement engineering is, is essentially a specialty area within geotechnical engineering. So a lot of pavement engineers start their career as a geotechnical engineer, and then as they gain more uh, education and research, then they, they gravitate towards becoming uh, more specialized in the pavement engineering field. So for those who don't know much about this area, why is rapid airfield damage repair an important area of concern for the military? Yeah, so in most military operations, even dating back to the World War II, one of the primary uh, strategies is to control the skies. If you can control the skies and you can control the air part of the component of the military action, then you have a strategic advantage. And so even dating back to World War II, the battle for the skies was an important part of the early stages of World War II. And actually, World War II turned when the Allied forces took over the skies from Germany. So hmm. up until a certain point, Germany was in charge of the skies. They controlled the skies. They had the the largest air force. They had the most dominant air force in capability. And so from that point, they could control the skies, and then they would be able to affect ground maneuvers because they could have freedom of maneuver in the air that would allow them to you know, attack ground forces from above. And it was a very impressive strategic advantage. And so the Allies realized that. And so we went into mass production of aircraft, which led to bigger and faster mm-hmm. and, and more capable airplanes for the Allied forces. And as the Allied forces took over the control of the skies, the war turned. You'll actually see right around that same time, that's when the Allied forces started making their push in Europe, started pushing Germany back, and started uh, making up ground and really changed the, the whole course of the war. 
That is the same case that moves on into Korea. When you own the skies in Korea, that was a major deciding factor in that conflict. And then in subsequent conflicts since that, if you remember back into the early days of the Iraqi war, then controlling the air is the first thing. Air dominance, we call it shock and awe in those things. Those are all about establishing air superiority and air dominance so that you can control that airspace and then affect, do the things that you want to be able to do to control the enemy's behavior. In regards to airfield damage repair, that means that one of the, the counteractions to that is to to damage the opposition's airfields. So sure. one of the first actions that happens in any conflict now is to target airfields, to attack those airfields, to deny your opposition the use of those airfields so that then they cannot control the skies, that they cannot compete in that. So airfield damage repair becomes very important to our strategy in which we want to be able to operate our aircraft and we can't launch and recover those aircraft if our airfields are damaged. So it's a very time sensitive activity. So that means that it's very time critical. So after an airfield is attacked, you have to repair that very quickly in order to be relevant, in order to be able to affect operations. You can't take weeks or even Mm -hmm. months to repair that facility. You're talking about hours and days, preferably hours to meet most of our mission requirements. Yeah. How much, I know different programs, different mission requirements have different timelines, but on average, how, what kind of timeline are you talking about for the well, repair? In airfield damage repair, it varies. It depends upon what strategic objectives mm-hmm. we're trying to choose and the critical nature of the base itself or whatever the installation is. But it typically ranges from about, we need to reopen or do a, a few distinct craters within four hours, wow. all the way up to a large number of small craters in about eight hours, or... We could have a different mission set where we're thinking about alternate launch and recovery surfaces, so a secondary airfield, and we may have up to as much as 48 hours to 72 hours to do that. But we're still targeting hours in just a couple days, not weeks or months. So it's a, a very rapid process is important, and that really drives the technology. So the rapid is very important is understanding that the, it's very time sensitive. We need to be able to reopen the airfield as quickly as possible to launch and recover airplanes. And because of that, it drives technology that is also suited for rapid construction. So we don't always use things that are used in permanent construction because sometimes those things are designed for a long extended service life, Mm -hmm. 20 years, 30 years. But those things may take a while to actually build to that level of permanency. So airfield damage repair is more of a temporary pavement repair process and with a, a large emphasis on speed of construction. Sure. So traditional methods don't fit the time constraints? No, they do not. Typically, we can't use a lot of our permanent pavement construction processes or repair processes because they just are not suited to be conducted within that time frame. How did you come to be involved in this? So when I started my career in the uh, early 90s at Erdic, I w- came into the Airfields and Pavements Research Group and at that time, we were in a kind of a little bit of a down cycle of pavement research. And a lot of the pavement engineers that we had working in the DOD had a long career and a distinguished career, but they were nearing the end of their career period. So there weren't very many young people within the government system, mm-hmm. within the DOD, and within even ERDIC. And so I was one of a, just a very few engineers that were being hired on as a succession plan to some of the senior engineers as they got ready for retirement. And during that time, I started working with uh, a couple of mentors who had worked in this area in the uh, Korean War era and Vietnam War eras. And then they, I learned a little bit about their work in the ni- mid-1980s from them. And then as the Iraqi War uh, desert storm came online, they were looking for how do we modernize those procedures? 
how do we get involved in conducting research to improve the methodologies? Because our plane technology, our aircraft technology had evolved from the 1980s mm-hmm. through the mid-1990s and te- early 2000s. So as that plane of evolution took place, then I was one of the junior engineers that were already positioned in that field. So I kind of assumed responsibility for conducting that research naturally, really through attrition. It's kind of by happenstance a little bit. It was a great opportunity that evolved really resulting from a need that derived from the desert storm, the Iraqi conflict. And, you know, on that, I know when we talked the other day, you kind of talked to the fact that there's been different cycles in this. Like during the Cold War era, this was, you know, a very hot topic. And then it kind of slowed down a little bit. And then there was a new cycle that kind of started when when the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of kicked up. It's been cyclical to a degree. Yeah. And most research, if you look back, is like that. It's like you have areas of interest, need arise. And it's really driven by external stimuli. So the external stimuli in this case is, is some sort of military conflict happening somewhere. The other thing that, we, that really drives not just airfield damage repair, but other pavement research is changes in aircraft. So as a new airplane or a new technology is developed from the aircraft industry, then it necessitates change in the way that we design, construct, and evaluate pavements to support those new air. Right now, we're seeing another evolution, which is vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. As the aircraft industry evolves and we go into supporting vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, the supporting infrastructure is going to have to evolve to meet the challenges of those new technology, new aircraft technology. In the airfield damage repair, we see that it's typically around some sort of large-scale world military conflict that the United States is involved in. So as those needs arrive, then we seek to address concerns and to meet the military mission. And so that's World War II, the Korea conflict, mm-hmm. Vietnam conflict, and then we move into the Cold War scenario. There was there was a lot of interest in the Cold War period in the mid-1980s. It drove a lot of research into that area to how would we recover our airfields in Europe. And then that evolved back again in the late 90s and 2000s as the different missions in Iraq and Afghanistan created a need to be able to rapidly repair bomb-damaged airfields to support the new missions that we had evolving. So you just completed a technology demonstration for expedient and expeditionary airfield damage repair. Can you tell us a little more about that and the need that it's feeling? Yes, as we mentioned, the airfield damage repair, there are a lot of different operational scenarios. Sometimes uh, it's the opposition are attacking some of our permanent main operating bases, and we have to rapidly recover those. And we worked in that area for a long time. But The the advantage there is it's our base. We can pre-position all the materials and equipment and expertise there to be able to rapidly go out there and repair a base. The Expedia and Expeditionary Airfield Damage Repair Joint Capability Technology Demonstration, or EADR-JCTD, that program was all initiated around the ability to go to a remote location or an austere location where we don't have the ability to pre-position supplies and materials and equipment. So we have to bring everything with us in order to be able to conduct the repairs. The other thing that's unique about the EADR-JCT scenario is that it's only designed to support a small number of aircraft for a very specific uh, mission set. And so in doing that, that would allow us to reduce the logistical footprint and to use technologies that may not be suitable for repairing a main operating base, but they're suitable to provide a just-enough, just-in-time solution for a very expedient mission, a very temporary mission, 
in a remote location. And so one of the key objectives there was to reduce the logistical footprint, reduce the amount of materials and equipment we have to bring to that remote location. And then it did give up some capabilities that the urgency isn't quite the same. So at our main operating base, it affects all of our missions. So we have to repair that extremely quickly. So the time constraints are a little bit more stringent. But in this adaptive basing or remote location, alternate launching, we have a little bit more time. So while we can use less materials and equipment, we also had a little bit more time. So going from repairing in just a few hours to repairing in a couple days. Sure. You've talked about this a little bit already, but obviously this is research that's been going back for years and years. How does it change? How have the challenges that you're trying to solve changed through the years? Yes, as I mentioned, the last major research thrust was in the mid-1980s addressing Cold War. And that concept of operations was, we're just going to repair enough, the airfields just enough to allow a few missions, but they were our main operating base. So we had very deliberately staged equipment and procedures for those, that era's aircraft. Since the 1980s, our aircraft evolved, and one of the particular driving factors was the development of the new C-17 Globemaster aircraft. It's a very large airplane. It's the second largest airplane in the, in the uh, U.S. military's inventory. It has a very unique mission to deliver cargo directly into the theater. So it has a unique capability to not just do tactical, like local flights, but it can do strategic flights from the U.S. directly into an area of operation, like a forward area airfield. So with the implementation and the christening of that new airplane capability, we needed to see whether or not that aircraft was compatible with the existing airfield damage repair technology. So in about 2005-06, we did a study here at Erdic. The Air Force contacted us and said, hey, we have this new airplane. We want to make sure that it's compatible with the existing airfield damage repair or ADR solutions. We conducted a test out in California that demonstrated that, no, in fact, it was not. The new airplane was too large and had created too much forces on the pavement structure that the legacy technologies were not sufficient to support that. So it began a new era of of research called Airfield Damage Repair Modernization Program, where the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and the Marines all decided that, hey, we have to modernize our approach to meet these new military aircraft that we're bringing online. And so as that evolved, we get, they came to Erdic because of our unique expertise in airfields and pavements and our tri-service lead mm-hmm. position in airfields and pavements to conduct that research. We started investigating materials and equipment and process, construction processes to support that mission. The original mission was the traditional mission, which is one of our main operating bases is going to get attacked and that we need to be able to conduct the repairs to be able to reopen that base to service. So we spent several years developing new materials and solutions to support these new modern aircraft like the C-17 and other aircraft of our day to be able to support that. However, as time goes on and the military strategy shifts different theaters of operations shift from a European theater concern to a CENTCOM concern Mm -hmm. to an Indo-PACOM or Pacific concern. Those different missions require different solutions because they're not all the same. So we need a little bit different technology set to address the new mission requirements. That's kind of allowed airfield damage repair to evolve to meet several different mission challenges from our main operating bases being attacked and recovering Mm -hmm. those to being able to project our forces to an austere or remote location, being able to repair a remote airfield with a very limited amount of resources and being able to recover that so that we can use that airfield 
to meet some particular military objective. I think you said it earlier, I guess, the two biggest things that change things for you all are the, the mission and the aircraft. Exactly. The, the, the mission is continuously evolving as threats appear, our international policies dictate that, and our strategies in, in coping with potential threats. And then secondly, as the, the aircraft technology has evolved through the years, it really necessitates change in the infrastructure technology to support it. As I say, we're on the cusp of not really in the airfield damage repair scenario, but in the airfield pavement scenario with the new vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And then you can see from SpaceX's new research that's all on the news that we're going to see the, the ability to launch and recover rockets is going to probably change the way we do some things in the airfield world in the, the next 20 years, wow. if, you're, if you're looking to the future. Yeah, well, I wouldn't ask on that on the vertical lift. I mean, what kind of new challenges does that present? I guess you've got to be able to support more weight. It's just not more weight. We're always, in the tradition, in the history of aircraft, we're always going up in weight. So <laughs> the original yeah. aircraft were about as heavy as your car, and now they're, the C-17, for example, weighs 585,000 pounds. And it's only our second largest. The C-5 Galaxy is close to a million pounds. So these new modern aircraft are very heavy, but the vertical lift presents a unique challenge in heat. So if you think about it, in order to maintain its vertical capability, it's actually pointing its thrusters or its engine's exhaust at the ground. Mm -hmm. And so you're putting a lot of heat onto a pavement instead of it being projected horizontally with the pavement. It's actually directed straight at the pavement, creating high heat signatures. And so the pavement materials have to evolve to be able to resist deterioration under those high heat type systems, both vertical aircraft and the future, which I think is going to come in the next 10 years. We're going to see it start to become even more and more common or rocket delivery platforms. You're seeing that even with concepts like Amazon of the future, which is direct delivery of small platforms, small rockets that would bring your package to a central location and deliver that versus some of the ways it's being done like ground shipping today. Yeah. Huh. If you're a Gen Xer, you can kind of think about the Jetsons. So we're starting to move into that world of the Jetsons, wow. things, cartoons and concepts that were just really crazy to think about as we're kids are really starting to become a reality. Huh. Um, so how is Arctic uniquely situated to undertake this research, not just in the area of our team members and the capabilities that we have here, but also in our unique facilities and our testing capabilities. Erdic has done a great job throughout the years of trying to think forward and to develop unique facilities and infrastructure to support research and testing needs. And this has allowed us to continue to evolve as an organization rather than become a little bit stale and conducting the same types of research and over and over. The second thing that Erdic uh, has that, that a lot of agencies don't is that we have a, a multidisciplinary team. So we have seven different laboratories with a lot of different capabilities within those laboratories. So as we bring a team together to solve a complex engineering problem, we have a lot of resources within our own organization, within the umbrella of Erdic that we can draw upon in order to solve that problem. We have physicists located in branch. We have chemists located in different uh, laboratories. We have, if there are water issues, we'll say we're doing uh, water-based landings and are there some issues with that, then we can call upon our teammates in our coastal and hydraulics laboratory. If we want to model the systems before we actually conduct prototype testing, we can use our information technology lab, use our engineered resilient systems capabilities to do virtual prototyping of solutions that allows us to save money during the research process. 
We have our geospatial research lab that can help us look for suitable landing zones. There's a lot of capability across the ERDIC that we can bring to bear. The other thing that ERDIC brings that has is we do a lot of reimbursable research. As an Army organization, we do get direct funding to support the Army's civil works and military mission, but we also have a large reimbursable component because of our expertise where other DOD and government agencies come to us to tap into that expertise. So they're bringing their funding and resources to us to help them solve their problems. And because of that, we have unique connections with academia and industry and partners with other DOD and federal agencies that will allow us to tap into them as resources as well. And if we need those external expertise to add to our internal capability in order to solve these complex problems. So ERDIC is very uniquely positioned with a large in-house technical capability with uh, multiple disciplinary teams to be able to solve that problem. And that coupled with the partnerships that we have in place really gives us a unique ability to solve some very large and complex engineering problems. Who are some of those partners that you're working with? So we routinely work with the Air Force Civil Engineer Center and the Air Force Research Laboratory. We routinely work with the Navy's NAVAIR organization and particularly their group in Lakehurst that does a lot of their experimentation and technology development. We also work with their, the NAVFAC, Naval Facilities Engineering Command, Expeditionary Warfare Center, which is out in uh, Port Wanimi, California. We partner with those tri-service engineering groups. In fact, this week we've had the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and the Marine Corps Engineer School in here exchanging ideas on, on not only the problems that they have in the Marine Corps and we have in the Army, but on, on how we're solving those problems and coming up with a joint solution. So we have those military partners. But in addition to that, we part routinely partner with the major universities in the United States and abroad that conduct research in these areas. So we can tap into academia as needed to help us provide the best solution. We have industry partners. We do more prototyping than we've probably done in the past. So Erdic's unique capability to do basic research, like ma basic materials and fundamental knowledge research, growing that into applied research where we're developing a, a solution and testing and evaluating it, and then demonstrating that through demonstration programs. So Erdic's ability to conduct research from basic to applied research to demonstrations and even supporting some transition to programs of record really allows us to engage in the full spectrum of research and transition of technology. So it gives us a, a great ability or a, a competitive advantage in some ways against other agencies because we can operate in all of those different realms of the research uh, process. Yeah, on that point, when we were talking the other day, you talked a lot about um, one of the things maybe that's been unique you know, on this program specifically is the amount of work you all have done with acquisitions and transitions. This uh, program, the Airfield Damage Repair Program, has been one of the most rewarding programs from that perspective because it's one of the few research programs that we are involved from the very beginning of basic materials research to testing and evaluation of materials technologies that have been developed for this specific solution to evaluating equipment solutions, modifying commercial off-the-shelf equipment technology for this military-specific mission, helping transition that technology to the actual warfighter. So in some cases, We've actually procured the equipment uh, necessary, assembled the kits, the repair kits here locally at Erdic, and then d shipped those kits to directly to the units uh, wherever they're stationed around the world. 
supporting both the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps in delivering technologies to the end user, the warfighter. So not just conducting the early research, the basic research, or the fundamental science research, but all, all the way to full delivery, transition, and supporting even some training in some instances. And in terms of industry partners, too, I think you talked the other day, you all have also worked with them on maybe modifying an existing piece of equipment to have a different military application. And you all would have those relationships to say, hey, we want to take X, but it needs to do this. Can we mod- you know, work together to find a way to make it happen? Absolutely. So we consider industry a critical partner in any endeavor such as this because we don't need to invest the government's limited research dollars to develop a totally new equipment solution when there's an equipment technologies that are being commercially used right now for similar activities. They just need some to be adapted to our military-specific mission. In some cases, we identify a commercial uh, equipment technology We'll invite that vendor to come to the Erdic or one of our uh, field facilities. We'll conduct some demonstrations with their equipment. And in that process, our pavement engineers and experts will look at that equipment and say, this equipment could be improved for our particular use if we add this or change that. And so we work with the industry to identify potential modifications to their existing systems to enhance them or improve them to meet our needs. So this is obviously a military program, but are there civil works applications as well? Yes. The technologies that we have developed for this kind of military-specific application, how do we rapidly repair one of our military bases after an attack? Well, pavement damage isn't unique to kinetic munitions. Commercial airports also experience pavement damage from either drainage problems or overloading, or there are different ways that pavements at commercial airports get damaged. When you shut down a commercial airport, then they're losing lots of money. So they're losing money by that minute, not by the hour. They count money by the minute. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for them to be able to reopen that pavement after repair. If they use traditional construction technologies, it typically takes about a month after the repair. You have to allow it to cure. You have to allow it to strengthen and harden over time before you can reopen it to heavy aircraft loads. But with these new technologies, it allows them to perform the repairs faster. And then the materials technologies that we've developed allow them to reopen those pavements to service, to actually reopen them the next day. Wow. So even sometimes within hours, if that's the necessary. But Hours and days versus months save the commercial air industry millions of dollars. So uh, many of the technologies have been readily adapted for commercial applications. Further, a lot of the rapid setting materials technologies have even further evolved to be used on some of our heaviestly trafficked interstates. Mm. So you think about California, where you have six lanes of traffic and their traffic jams are we're famous for, mm-hmm. and closing a lane in California on one of their major inter- interstates, let's say in Los Angeles is a major incident. So if, if yeah. they don't have time to really repair it. So they come in at night and they'll tear out the damaged slabs and they'll use these new technologies to rapidly place new concrete materials. And using these new rapid setting concretes allows them to reopen it by the time the sun rises right. in the morning. So a lot of their repairs on these major thoroughfares are happening using the same technologies that we developed for airfield damage repair. Huh. That's cool. Moving back on the military side, you mentioned, of course, being the tri-service lead here. Uh, how much work are you all doing with U.S. allies as well to, to help them improve their capabilities? 
as the tri-service lead, we're obviously working with our counterparts with the Army, Navy, Air Force, and we work well with them. It's a very close-knit community. So as the lead, they typically come to us not only for direct research, but also reimbursable research to solve some of their problems. And as these programs have developed and we've been successful in developing and fielding effective solutions, then other nations, partners, and allies have taken notice of that. And so through our relationships on uh, panels such as the NATO panels or other international alliances, those nations become aware of some of the research that we're doing, and they become interested in those. There are strategic objectives in being able to be interoperable, for instance, We want our allies and they want us to be able to operate from the same pavement. So if we're working in a joint, a truly international joint environment on a peacekeeping mission or a military wartime mission, then we want to be able to operate on the same technical solutions. And so a lot of those nations have contacted the URTIC and we've worked with several recently to help them develop and modernize their own airfield damage repair capabilities. The great thing for the United States about that is that in working with them, and helping share some of the technology innovations. It means if their engineering troops are at a location and they're conducting repairs, we are already familiar with the technologies. Those technologies are already approved and proven for compatibility with our aircraft so we can operate freely on those with the confidence that those are going to be, they're going to perform as intended for our own uh, system. So we've worked with at least four different nations in helping them modernize their technology, helping provide them uh, some of the material and equipment solutions, and then working with them to help train them on installation procedures. But as we do that, they use their own capability and expertise to adapt those to their own unique national expertise and requirements. It's been very rewarding to see the technologies developed here at Erdic in Vicksburg, Mississippi, be used around the world. Yeah. We mentioned Arctic's long history in airfield damage repair. Can you highlight some of Arctic's other current innovative projects that are similar to this effort? So we're doing a lot of research and development, particularly, as I mentioned, with heat-resistant pavements, uh, as we're adapting those for vertical takeoff and landing. And some of the this t- same technology is going to be used or have a lot of commercial applications. Think about SpaceX and how their all of their landing pads are going to be essentially heat-resistant materials. Mm. And so this technology is going to continue to grow over time. And so Erdic is already working to position ourselves with unique uh, capability, the right experts, the right academic backgrounds from in- new engineers and scientists that we're hiring to help address this problem, as well as facilities to test these material solutions that is testing virtually to save money, and then full-scale testing to validate designs and and materials. That's one area that we're working in. Uh, We also do a lot of full-scale testing of different pavement technologies and innovative products in another area is geosynthetics. So that's not a term that most people are familiar with, but what is geosynthetics are geomaterials that are typically made of polymers or plastics. Mm. They're intended to help reinforce or support or improve the properties within pavement infrastructure. And we work with that industry to help evaluate product solutions. So industry is coming to Erdic because of our unique expertise. The power of Erdic, if you will, the, the unique facilities and expertise that we have is very attractive to them. And it, what it does for the Army and for the nation is it allows us to evaluate those technologies and help to improve those so that we can provide better products to the Army and the nation. So there's a lot of expertise within Erdic that's coming on. 
and it's having a large impact all across industry and in the world as the technologies get transitioned. So Erdic's ability to work at all levels in the research and development process uh, is really a key to facilitating that interaction. Tell us some more about what are some other things the future holds. I know you've talked about extreme, you know, looking at extreme environments. Absolutely. So as the military has the unique uh, requirement that we have to be able to provide solutions all over the world. So we don't just work in the in a small region. We don't just work in Mississippi, for instance, like a, a state department of transportation. We don't just work in the continental United States, like the federal highways or the FAA. We work worldwide. So the solutions and the, the engineering solutions that we develop have to be applicable around the world. And that includes extreme environment. That includes desert environments where you might have surface temperatures up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, all the way down to Arctic temperatures where it might be minus 20 to minus 30 degrees below. And Erdic is involved actively now in research and development to address those environments and to address those things. So that's kind of the future is like, how do we adapt the basic technology solutions and provide just a little bit of changes or modifications to them to allow those same basic technology solutions to work in a extremely hot desert environment or to work in an extremely cold Arctic environment. And in fact, we have some tests going on in the next month in Alaska to evaluate some of the airfield damage repair solutions uh, below freezing. So we want to be able to demonstrate that we can go out and repair the bomb craters at temperatures as down to minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit so that the same technological solutions are used for the operations all around the world. Similarly, you know, we want to continue to develop technologies that can be used all over uh, because our mission set is not bound, if you mm-hmm. will, very neatly into a little package. So international ability to, to engage, all over, use of local materials is, is going to be a, a very important evolution of this. It's, mm-hmm. a little, it's easier to solve a problem when you can control all the variables. As a research engineer, we try to control the things we can control. But in some cases, we can't afford to bring all of the specialized materials that we need because that's a large volume of materials there. So we have to make use of what's locally available. So I think that one of the key evolutions you're going to see is adapting the technology so that we get to bring less and less materials to a a remote location or a a nation that is struggling from an industrial perspective to be able to where we can't get all of the resources that we're used to being able to get in the United States or in Europe. So how do we do some of these large infrastructure missions in those environments? Not just airfield damage repair, mm-hmm. but any major construction effort. And so we have to going to have to adapt our procedures and construction technologies to maximize the use of local uh, materials that may not be exactly what we want to use. So I think we're seeing a lot of research move into that realm to be able to affect infrastructure research and development in remote locations and in less developed countries. Thanks, Jeb. This has been great. And, you know, I guess you talked at the beginning and about Erdix having this great concentration of pavement experts. And, and it's just amazing to see all the, all the things that, that are coming out of it and a rich past and sounds like a bright future too. So thanks so much for joining us and talking more about it. Yeah, we really appreciate you inviting uh, me to come and share a little bit of information about one of our key programs. Erdic has done a fabulous job in preparing for the next generation. So one of the great things about Erdic is it's a great place to work. And so the leadership has created a culture of innovation and a culture that prepares us for success. So recruiting good young engineers, bright young minds in a variety of disciplines 
thinking outside the box, allowing some freedom of maneuver in terms of the areas that we get into, it really encourages that innovative spirit. And that culture of innovation and culture of uh, collaboration with other organizations really has expanded the power of Verdict to address some really hard problems. And it makes it very rewarding to the teams. So it uh, enables us to recruit good people and enables us to retain those people to create this nest or this high concentration of dedicated professionals to this particular mission. Absolutely. Thanks for stopping by today, Jeff. Since 2005, Verdict's Airfield Damage Repair Program has received more than $120 million in research funding and has supported the transition of more than $2 billion in technology to the armed services, including about $1.5 billion to the Air Force alone. Its breadth of expertise in repairing and sustaining airfields is directly helping the U.S. and its allies establish and maintain air superiority, allowing the warfighter to gain advantage and accomplish the mission. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today, but we'll see you next time.